0: Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a healthcare provider. Hello, America. Happy Sunday. So excited to be with you today while we're having our brunch, while we're mowing the lawn, watching a little football, reading the newspaper, reading a good book, I want to... Take some of the great interviews we did on the television show that Amanda Head and I did on Just the News, Not Noise. Adapt them to podcast as we always do on Sunday. Lou Dobbs, Mike Huckabee, the Attorney General of Louisiana. Jeff Landry going to be running for governor down there. A lot of excitement among Republicans that they might capture the Louisiana governorship that's been in Democratic hands for a long time. Dr. Harvey Risch, the Yale epidemiologist who had COVID right when Dr. Fauci had it wrong. The head of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, the president, Tim Stewart, good friend of mine, going to talk about all those energy things like OPEC that happened. And then Jay Christian Adams, one of the real experts in the space on election integrity. He has some big lawsuits about voter rolls, including one in New York where they found 3 million voters on New York rolls have incomplete voter roll information that should make them uneligible to vote. We're going to talk about that with Jay Christian Adams. And then we save the big cleanup here. If you start with Lou Dobbs and Mike Huckabee, how do you clean up a show like that? I'll tell you how you bring Charlie Kirk on. My good friend Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA and, of course, one of my colleagues on the Real America's Voice Network. He's joining us. That will be our cleanup guest. Don't go away. That's quite a lineup for this Sunday morning. God bless you. Enjoy the show. We'll be back Monday with regular programming. and so much more. It's a community, not a service. Take advantage of our election year sale, four years for just $30 at AMAC. By joining over 2 million Americans, they can't ignore your voice in Washington anymore. Join now at AMAC, amac.us justnews. That's amac.us forward slash justnews. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike. Now, our first guest, I'm sure, has a lot to say about the court, our VP, and the growing distrust Americans have with the news media and all things Washington, including government-sanctioned censorship. He's one of America's most recognizable names, one of its greatest journalists, and he's one of my best friends, host of The Great American Show, Lou Dobbs. Lou, great to have you on the show.
1: Great to be with you. Thanks so much.
0: Great to have you, sir. I want to start with some of the things we've been learning about here at Justin the News the last few days. We've been talking about Uh, are really kind of unmasking a massive government-backed censorship operation in the 2020 election that impacted 22 million tweets, 4,900 sites, 20 news organizations. When you hear that government and uh, uh, private industry now working together to further censorship, what comes to mind?
1: Um, Utter madness on the part of this administration, uh, this uh, Democrat Party. Uh, It has lost its way. It is absolutely... Uh, beyond anything we could have imagined, no matter how strong the authoritarian impulse is within that party. Uh, this is a party that is moving straightforwardly, uh, well beyond uh, socialism, straight out to Marxism. And we've really got to come to terms with it because the Democrats themselves seem uh, unwilling to, to throttle back uh, or to even begin to uh, dampen these impulses within their party. We're looking at an administration that had a ministry ministry of truth uh, already laid out before they revealed that ministry of truth. The the governance disinformation governance board in the DHS uh, that uh, Alejandro Mayorkas uh, revealed to the country, to the to the country's great horror, they already had this in place. Uh, It's it's stunning to see what they have already done. And the impact they've already had, we, uh, we're learning more and more about the 2020 election. What we don't want to do is have to deal with this in 2022 uh, on November 8th. Yeah, so important.
2: Right. And, and you know, I know a lot of Americans look at what the Biden administration is doing and they are scratching their heads, but they are also looking at what they are saying. Uh, as we tease in the top of the show, what Vice President right. Kamala Harris, the comments regarding uh, an alliance with North Korea and then distributing hurricane resources based on skin color and equity. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, because, you know, Kamala Harris, she's she's gone to the DMZ, but she hasn't even been to our own border.
1: Absolutely. And to, to have these constant uh, errors of expression, I'm going to be as kind as I can be about this. Uh, she is just about as incoherent as the president himself. And this is not an accident because they continue to reveal themselves, their party, the, the character and the, the precepts of the Democrat Party, uh, talking about North Korea when he, you know, when she meant obviously uh, South Korea. Uh, to talk about uh, open borders, to discuss all of these issues in in the most uh, cavalier manner, without any depth of knowledge, uh, at least apparent knowledge about these issues, or even the the position of most Americans. Uh, They are tone deaf. They are absolutely out of control, as I suggested. uh, And we have to bring them to heel. It's that simple, because they are anti-American. They're anti-every uh, institution in this country that has been fundamental to assuring that this republic survive over the course of the last 250 years. Uh, it's, it's stunning stuff, it is, and it, is, it absolutely sickens me to hear them make these remarks.
0: Yeah. Uh, Lou, for a long time, you were calling out the media because the last seven years can't happen if they if the Democrats didn't have a complicit media, let Joe Biden run from his basement, allow the Hunter Biden laptop to be censored, uh, deny that there's a crisis at the border. A few minutes ago, this just came across just the news. President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, has sued CNN for defamation, uh, taking a pretty big legal strike against one of the centrists or one of pieces of, of that mainstream media. Your thoughts on the role that media has played in kind of furthering so many of the fake stories that we've gotten the last few years.
1: When we look at the, the role of media in the past six years, because it's been over six years now of political persecution of President Donald Trump. And I think people sometimes lose sight of the fact that despite three years of Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, probes, despite special counsel investigations, uh, two impeachments, not one instance of wrongdoing has ever been brought uh, forward uh, on President Donald Trump. But in that same time, we've learned that four consecutive directors of the FBI have lied to Congress and the American people, that agents of the FBI have been complicit in crime and conspiracy, against the president of the United States. We are at a desperate moment in history and we have to come to terms with what, what has been wrought in our, in our bureaucracy, the so-called permanent bureaucracy, uh, and the uniparty, which is a pseudo, uh, a, a pseudo bipartisanship, uh, it, pretending to be on the side of the nation rather than the awful partisans of either party. Uh, they are as big a part of the problem as the Democrat Party itself. And we've got to, we have got to do something about this. Uh, and and just hearings will not do. There has to be prosecution and there has to be focused prosecution. I hear a lot of people, John, talk about, well, we've got to impeach President uh, President Biden. But the fact of the matter is right now, the Democrats won't acknowledge, nor will he, of course, that he's impaired. And so long as he's impaired and not mentally capable, we can't prosecute. But what we can do is make certain that we prosecute everyone around that person, uh, investigate and prosecute uh, and bring it to bear and leave the Democrats with a very simple choice. Are you going to say that the president of the United States is impaired or is he not? And if he is, if you maintain still that he's not impaired, despite all the evidence to the contrary, then impeach Joe Biden.
2: Right. And it seems that the mainstream media is willing to explain away practically everything. Lou, you have been a beloved figure in journalism for so many years. What is it like to see your industry change so much, such that a lot of Americans think that mainstream media is complicit uh, or are complicit with with the Democrat Party? They are one and the same.
1: It it is truly, uh, for uh, someone who started, I was one among those who, helped to build CNN from its uh, very beginning. Uh, This is to see what that institution has gone through and where it is today. You remember when they brought in their new CEO, it was going to be a shift to the center. There's going to be dispassionate, objective, independent news gathering and and reporting. Uh, They've gone the other way. They're giving more time to left-wing activists who pose as journalists. Uh, It is right now an institution that is precisely in the place uh, uh, the new CEO founded. And that's unfortunate because it also shows how hollow those uh, suggestions were that they would change. The rest of the media is owned by, we're talking about a half dozen corporations. They're following the orders of those boardrooms and those CEOs uh, there's no accident that they went after Donald Trump. It's no accidents that they push CRT, ESG, IED, all of the, uh, the, the programs, the woke programs that they want to pursue. Uh, we've got a corporate, uh, a corporate structure in this country right now that is in desperate need of redirection uh, and understanding that uh, there is no place for political engagement on the part of these powerful corporations it has to stop in russia we call we call that kind of uh, economic concentration and influence we refer to oligarchs the billionaires who drive that country this is a country that is relies on the consent of the governed a, a, a middle class that is vibrant and vigorous and where the american dream lives and shines brightest we have to resurrect uh, all of these institutions And to make certain that uh, our FBI, our DOJ, that they are the farthest thing from corrupt, that our judiciary is brave and blind and impartial, uh, but willing to engage on the issues and the conflicts that define our times. They are not to this point.
0: That is the important moment that faces this country. Can we achieve that again? Lou, it is always an honor to have you on the show. I love being on your show, too, The Great American Show, folks. Check it out. One of the best podcasts in the entire country. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. former governor of Arkansas, may soon be the father of a future governor, not so distant future governor. He is the former governor of Arkansas, Mike be Governor, good to have you back on the show, sir.
3: Well, thank you. John, when you started doing the introduction and talked about this sage voice, I thought, oh, gee, I thought I was going to be on the show. I was really <laughs> oh. working there for a minute. Yeah. But it's great to be back with you and you, uh, always fun to watch you and Amanda and delighted to be here. Uh, here with you today.
0: Well, it's an honor to have you on. And, you know, you have always been a family values man in your policies as a politician, as a man in your own family, with the great family you've raised. Uh, It seems as though Democrats have miscalculated middle America. I think they thought this whole left thing would go over like uh, butter on bread. And they're finding out Americans still care about family. They still think parents are in charge of their children. They don't want to co-parent with the government. Is this a boomerang election where that message gets delivered to Democrats?
3: I think it's happening. Uh, what we first saw in Virginia were parents going to school board meetings, speaking up and, and not taking no for an answer and insisting that they had a right and a role to play in their children's uh, education. And it was the moment that turned to everything for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. But you started seeing it across the country. And it's not just the school board. Uh, Most people deep down believe that mothers and fathers raise better kids than a government ever will. And most parents didn't give birth to children so they could hand them over to the government. They never believed that the government uh, somehow is going to be the surrogate mother and father. And when the government continues to act like this, and, and we, we're seeing specific things. It's not only the teaching of critical race theory in schools, and America is evil and bad, and we can't trust America, and it's horrible, and all the, the kids who are uh, Caucasian ought to get on their knees and apologize to kids of color. It's not just that idiocy. There's more to it. It's this notion that If there's a biological boy and he goes into the locker room and pretends to be a girl, all the girls in the soccer team are supposed to pretend that that's okay. And if he takes off his clothes in front of them, they're not supposed to say anything. And their modesty is simply ignored uh, because of somehow this perceived uh, greater right of a male to pretend to be a female. And parents are sick of that. They, they don't want their their little daughters to be subjected to that. And then when you see the mutilation of teenagers, uh, double mastectomies and hysterectomies on girls who are uh, 15 years old. So it's a combination of many things. But I think it's coming to a head. And Democrats are probably going to pay the real price at the election uh, for taking on these crazy, nonsensical policies.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to, to get into the faith element because I, I saw a recent graph. In the 1950s, uh, 90% of Americans identified as Christian compared to now, only 70% identify as Christians, and only 81% of Americans even believe in God. For believers in America, how do we reverse, what's the best way to reverse that trajectory? Because when you reverse that trajectory, you, you know, it, it coincides with those family va- values that are so important to creating better leaders in America.
3: That's a great point, Amanda, and I do believe that there is a urgent need for uh, people of faith to be bold in their faith to realize that joining a church is not just joining a social club. The church has to stand for something. It has to stand for biblical values. It has to be the place where people go to find out what are the consistent and what are the everlasting uh, moral foundations and principles upon which our society was built. People can like it or not, but we were founded on the notion of a Judeo-Christian value system that put a great deal of focus on the rights, powers, and the privileges of the individual, not the group. What's happened, Marxism has come in and said, no, you are not individually important. You're only important as part of your group, whether you're a labor union, a minority uh, person of race, or a gender, or a special interest. And we've got to push back on that and push back hard and say, no, 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 your identity is not in group. Your identity is in that you are an individual creation of an almighty God who created you so uniquely that your DNA is unlike that of anyone else that does exist or ever has existed or ever will exist. You're special, you're unique. And so Uh, The individual is what America was based on. Our freedoms are individual. Our rights are individual. And by the same token, our responsibilities are also individual.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an important message. It's gotten so muddled in the last few years. But this seems like a course correction moment in our history. Um, Governor, you have seen through the years, particularly the last few years, this extraordinary move towards cancel culture and censorship. We've just had a series of stories that we broke on the story the last week. Federal agencies actually had a ticket system. They could literally file tickets, and the individuals who'd go out and contact the social media companies, say, please cancel that. 22 million social posts were affected by that. What do we need to do to get federal agencies to abide by what the Constitution says, which is the federal government shall not abridge our free speech?
3: If we don't get both houses of Congress in November, and if we don't get the White House back in 2024, there's not a whole lot we're going to be able to do. Because this administration and uh, the lunatic left is more than willing to just abuse and shred the Constitution and individual rights and somehow believe that they have Uh, every uh, value in the world to go and weaponize the Department of Justice, the FBI, and then to co-op social media companies where most people tragically get their news today. And essentially, these social media companies have become agents and tools of the government. I think some real serious lawsuits need to be filed against the social media companies Uh, We may not be able to break them with legislation because I'm not sure we got enough Republicans with guts to do it. But lawsuits filed to say that these are no longer social media companies. These are political entities, and they're giving well over and above the legal limits of political contributions in an in-kind effort to elect people from the left. And they need to be held accountable for that.
2: Yeah, I think that there are particularly some news organizations that need to consider legal action because they were (laughs) censored. Governor, uh, I, I, I am one half of a daddy-daughter duo, and I can attest to the fact that the relationship between a father and a daughter is something that is so incredibly special. Um, your daughter is is following in your footsteps. She's looking to become the governor of Arkansas. What an incredible uh, blessing for her and, and blessing for you, too. What is it like to see her grow up? She's such a woman of faith, a woman of God, uh, a wife, a mom. You have to be so proud of her.
3: I really am, Amanda. I'm proud of all three of my children, but the other two, my two sons, uh, you know, they don't want the notoriety that Sarah has uh, suddenly taken on because she's gotten involved as somebody on the ballot. But I am very proud of her. Most of all, what you just mentioned, I think, is the key to understanding Sarah. She is not so much a political person as she is a person of deep conviction and faith, Um, Even when she did the White House press briefing every day, a lot of people don't know this, but before she would go out, she'd go into her office, close and lock the door, say, don't disturb me. That's when she would have her own personal prayer time. She would read a passage from uh, this delightful devotional book by Sarah Young called Jesus Calling, and just kind of get her head focused on the big picture of life. Her priorities are God, her family. She has three wonderful children. I say that because they're my grandchildren and I think they're pretty cool. Uh, She has an amazing husband who absolutely supports her a thousand percent in what she's doing and uh, she loves her country. There's just no doubt about that. I think she'll be a great governor. I certainly feel that way. But one of the things that I think is going to be great is when her children living at the governor's mansion, you know, provided she gets elected, when they try to hide from her. She knows where all the hiding Uh, is. (laughs) She grew up. Uh, I forgot about that.
0: That's Uh. right. Governor Huckabee, it is such an honor to have you on the show. God bless you, sir. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Always a pleasure. God bless you guys. Take care.
0: All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. We want to go take a look backwards into what has happened to all that advice we were given for two years about COVID and the vaccines and masks and all that, because I swear for the last few weeks, I've been pedaling my bicycle backwards. Every time I see something, it's the opposite of what I know I was told a few months ago. But we have the perfect person. He is one of the country's greatest epidemiologists. Uh, He's at Yale University School of Public Health. He's a professor emeritus. He's our good friend, Dr. Harvey Risch. Doctor, great to have you back on the show today.
4: Pleasure to be with you.
0: So I want to start with this theme because it does seem like particularly related to the vaccine, but some of the other things, the CDC particularly and sometimes the NIH, well, they're kind of backing off some of those certain claims they made months ago. Actually, they sound a lot more like you now than they did a few months ago. Tell us what's going on.
4: Well, I'll get to the big ticket one in a moment. You know, there's been a number of things, of policy statements that, that have failed the masking, when we were back and forth on masking, originally I've said that the masking is is useless for these aerosol virus, respiratory viruses. It's like putting up a chain link fence to stop ping pong balls or mosquitoes from coming through. <laughs> yeah. The the, the, uh, the, the masks are, are, are essentially useless. And and the latest one, and that, that, that's official, is that the vaccines no longer serve a public health function. The, C, the CDC said this, On August 11th, that the, and their official statement is that two doses of the vaccines do not prevent transmission of the infection, and a booster prevents transmission only for a transient period, which wanes. Now, to me, transient is, is, in public health terms, short. And that means that they're not useful as a general public health mechanism of controlling the pandemic. The government only has one rationale for mandating the vaccines, which is to prevent transmission and spread. If the vaccines don't do that, then there is no rationale. The people can choose to take the vaccines if they think it's in their medical interest, if they think they're going to get less severe COVID or something like that, that's their choice. But the government has no rationale for doing that, no compelling interest. So the CDC has officially backtracked on the vaccines as a method of public health in pandemic control. And that is a huge thing because we spent the last two years pretending that the vaccines were going to solve the pandemic and they haven't. And what this and this is an even bigger issue than that because the economic forces suppressed all of the competitors to the vaccines, the early outpatient treatment, which they said don't work when in fact we know that they have worked. They've worked for two years. <clears throat> these medications like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and so on, that have been very effective in reducing risk of hospitalization and mortality, what the vaccines were supposed to do. And now that the vaccines have failed to control the, the pandemic, we're left thinking that the government was wrong on these early outpatient treatments, which it's certainly been wrong on.
2: Yeah, so many questions from the public remain. But also, you know, I remember during the COVID pandemic, there were videos of Peter Doshak of EcoHealth Alliance talking about the, the functions and the innovation of gain of function research as it related to the Wuhan lab. And there were so many concerning elements to that, not only from the general public, but from the medical community. And now we learned that Anthony Fauci has, has granted uh, more funding to uh, EcoHealth Alliance. What are, what are your thoughts on that?
4: Well, I think this is, is utterly absurd that Dashak and the EcoHealth Alliance and the Wuhan Institute of Virology have demonstrated that they cannot control the keeping the, the virus safe that they're the ones who who did the experimental work between the US researchers and the Chinese researchers did the experimental work to to make a virus that was causes much more severe illness in people that spread around the world and now they want more money <clears throat> to to make more viruses to do the same uh, the same uh, damage across the world that they couldn't control in the first place. It's absurd. <clears throat> the second reason that I've heard about this is is that they're looking to find more instances of the same coronavirus in other le- in other <clears throat> bats in other mines in in order to claim that the the virus release in the first place wasn't genetically engineered. And that's totally bizarre as well, that this is a genetically engineered virus. We don't know quite yet when and how it was initially released, but we know that it's a genetically engineered virus, and we know that that the EcoHealth Alliance was helping the Chinese to to fund to do this, this genetic research to create this virus.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing tale and a hundred, a hundred and eighty degrees opposite of what we were told and censored if we dared questioned it. Uh, a couple of years ago, pretty remarkable. Um, doctor, we have uh, all this reversal, we have this recognition now that the public health sector failed America in a big way, but beyond the specifics of COVID and trying to get that right, have we solved the larger systemic issues of stifling debate, having too much power in one hands, uh, uh, maybe not doing the right type of research to prepare for things like pandemics? We Do we need a much larger do-over in the public health space to get this right?
4: Absolutely. Public health has not only failed in its control of of COVID, it's failed in its understanding of how to relate public health to the general public. Public health took the idea that it knows better than the general public about policies and and behaviors, and therefore it granted itself paternalism to propagandize basically the, the public. To, to mislead them, to misrepresent them, in order to encourage behaviors that the public health establishment thought would be beneficial. For example, all of the misrepresentations about the vaccines was all calculated only on the basis of getting more people to take the vaccines, not on whether the vaccines were doing any good or not. Well, that paternalism has become totally toxic. It's taken a whole life unto itself. Uh, public health are the only authorities who can talk about the, the official messaging about anything, about the vaccines, about treatments, about all medical diagnostic and treatment modalities related to the pandemic. Now the public health authorities and administrative bodies are the only ones who who are officially allowed to talk about that. Where did science go? The sci- this is not science. Science is, is give and take debate by by people who are trained to understand the medical and scientific issues and to discuss them in public and and let the science fall out the way it has done for the last three or four hundred years that's not what we have now we have a control debate where one side that can't argue back it doesn't have the science censors instead censorship is a tool of, of the weak and that's what we've been fighting that the that when when one side of the debate cannot argue back argues back with weak and illogical evidence Instead of arguing back, it censors. It says the other side is not allowed to speak, and that is in no way combating the actual science that's being presented by the other side. And that's what we've lived with, and that has totally destroyed the general population's faith in public health uh, administration, in the medical sphere as well, in pharma as well. The public health has very good reason not to believe all of the the so-called plausibility that that's come out of the public health and medical and fda and cdc and nih and so on it's all been plausibility hasn't been science they haven't there's not been any public science that's discussed any of this
0: yeah well one thing the public does know you gave them an honest story when our government officials weren't and for that we are forever grateful doctor always an honor to have you on the show we'll have to have you back on real soon all right folks we're gonna take a quick commercial break we'll be right back after these messages Just a couple of days ago, the political landscape in Louisiana changed in a big way. Attorney General Jeff Landry announced he's going to be running for governor. He has been leading the fight on many different things, border, uh, mask mandates, and of course, uh, the big lawsuit that's exposing censorship by our own government, uh, working and colluding with the big tech companies. So joining us right now, uh, General Landry. General, great to have you on, sir.
7: Thank you for having me, John.
0: It is a great honor and let's start with the big announcement, a big career move for you running for governor. I know you got a lot of popularity in the state. What uh, led you to make this decision now?
7: Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I love Louisiana and I love the people from Louisiana. And I believe that while Louisiana is blessed with a lot of natural resources that folks from around the country can recognize, I think the greatest natural resource Louisiana has or its people, just a great bunch of people that live here. And it's unfortunate, but Louisiana continues to lag, continues to be last, not only nationally, but certainly in the South, in a lot of economic indicators. And I'm, quite frankly, I'm sick and tired of it. In addition to this, you know, I did a stint in Congress back in 2010 from 10, 2010 to 2012 and realized, uh, certainly as we watched the Washington, D.C. landscape. That I've come to the conclusion that if you really want to fix this country, you fix it by fixing your state. Mm-hmm. And so I've spent two terms now as the attorney general. We've done some great things. I love the job that I have, but it's, you know, the unfortunate thing is here in Louisiana, the governorship is one of the most powerful governorships. In the country. Now, I don't know if that means if that's really good or bad. It certainly hasn't been a good thing for Louisiana. Cause again, as I spoke about earlier, we seem to be last in a lot of indicators. Uh, but the things that are on the mind of people in Louisiana are crime, education, and economy. And we are poised to tackle all three of them as their next governor.
2: Fantastic, Attorney General, Louisiana is such a wonderful state with so much great culture and food and landscape and, like you said, natural resources. But you also highlighted something uh, that, unfortunately, is known very well, especially in the city of New Orleans crime. Uh, New Orleans is consistently in the top five cities in the country of crime per capita. I know that that is something that's going to resonate with your voters. And we we caught up with President Trump a few days ago, and he indicated that he, he thought that was going to be the top issue for GOP voters heading into November. Do you think that as well?
7: Absolutely. I I squarely agree uh, with the president on that. Uh, Crime is out of control in many of the big cities around the country. Unfortunately, Louisiana, it's it's not only affected New Orleans, but other cities as well as we have incompetent mayors and these woke district attorneys want to play this dangerous game of catch and release with criminals Uh, as, you know, and again, that's another reason I'm running for governor because as governor, we're just not going to put up with that. I think that what you're seeing is basically a culmination of these social justice policies that were basically hijacked by very liberal groups uh, that created this dangerous game of catch and release. And the people that are paying for it the most are the citizens.
0: Yeah, that's right. The everyday people on the street, when they're afraid to even go out of their homes, you know there's a problem in the country. Uh, sir, uh, a lot of people have been waiting for decades, I should say, for Washington to fix itself and fix the country. You went and took it into your own hands. As an attorney general, you went and used states' rights to go into the court and confront Joe Biden on some of these policies. You won time and time again. What is the lesson for other people in states now that are suffering under some of these Biden policies? Uh, you can win in the courts, I think, is what you've been able to show.
7: You know, my message to them is that look, the United States is great because we are fifty individually sovereign states, and that when the federal government puts its boot on the neck of states, which ultimately results in the, in in the, in the federal government's boot on the neck of its of the citizens of those states, that state attorney generals have the ability to push back against the federal government and use the court system to do so. And what we've done time and time again is to use this great document that is the Constitution against these executive orders that Joe Biden has engaged in since he began. And it's all executive orders that restrict the liberties and freedoms that make America great. And we've done that here in Louisiana. Of course, we've utilized and banded with our fellow Republican attorney generals, whether they be from Texas or Missouri or Indiana or Arkansas and the likes, but we, we've got a great bunch of Republican attorney generals who have stood up time and time again on, you know, against federal overreach.
2: I know the people of your state love that boldness that they see from you, and that's uh, likely going to carry through as you are campaigning in this last, uh, in this last term up to that. I wanted to ask you about immigration because so many people are familiar with the opioid crisis. They saw how it affected uh, many states in our country, but Louisiana was hit particularly hard. And now we are seeing a fentanyl crisis with illegal immigration under this administration, under the Biden administration, illegal immigration, you know, pouring across our border, including those drugs. How hard has that hit Louisiana, uh, the fentanyl crisis, as opposed to the opioid crisis? Is it the same? Is it worse? What's the case?
7: Well, look, you know, Louisiana is a is next door neighbor is Texas, which is a border state. And I believe that some of the greatest threats to the country are seeping through a very porous border. It is really dysfunctional that this country can't get its immigration policy correct. It's been broken since I was in Congress a decade ago, but you can't fix it unless you seal the border. You know, I go again and again and talk to people and I ask them, do you have a front door at your home? How many people you know don't have a front door? Everyone I know does have one. Well, our borders are our doorway. That is the gateway into our country. And they should be able to be opened and closed and locked and sealed so that we can let the people who we want to into the country. There's no doubt that America was built with a solid, robust immigration policy. But there was a way under which people came into the country. They acclimated. Citizenship meant something. What the Democrats' open border policy means is that we no longer are citizens. And if we don't have a citizenship, we then become subjects. And the only way to fix that is for states to stand up and tell the federal government, we've got enough. You've got a responsibility. Now go do it.
0: Yeah, so important. That message is beginning to resonate all across this country. People are fed up with this. Uh, Mr. General, I want to ask this. You have been such a big advocate of the First Amendment. Um, You have begun exposing the collusion between federal agencies And Big Tech, we just had a story here about DHS using a consortium to uh, make censorship requests that impacted 22 million tweets in a four-month period in the 2020 election. Tell us what you're finding about that collusion and how troubling it is to you.
7: Don, I'm going to tell you, this case in Louisiana, between us and Missouri, against the federal government dealing with censorship, is probably one of the most important cases of this century. What we believe we have uncovered is the government going in and actually censoring information that normally should have freely flown to the American people. The greatness about the First Amendment, the reason it is the First Amendment, is that our founders recognized that people should have the ability to take in information, to absorb that information, and then make a decision based upon their free will. And that that information should not be censored or filtered. When the Internet was born, it was born to be a great thing so that the information of ideas would be readily flowed back and forth. We could connect more people around the country and around the globe. But what it has actually become is a censoring machine akin to something that communist dictators would love, love to have. And so what we're seeing here is that basically during the 2020, during 2019, the government basically censored 2021, censored information that we believe the American people deserved and needed to know. In some cases, it could have been life-saving information, is what we're Mm. finding out today. Wow! The judge here allowed for discovery. We're beginning those documents, uh, and, and in that discovery, we found a lot of the same things we thought our legal theory would would prove then then a couple of weeks ago or several weeks ago mark zuckerberg goes on joe rogan and basically admits and makes our case for us so again i think the american people should stay tuned to what's going on in the courts here in louisiana i believe it's one of the greatest cases we have in this century
0: all right folks we're gonna take a quick commercial break we'll be
8: right back after these messages
0: Welcome back, everybody. On this show, we talk a lot about the importance of election integrity, the real facts, not the spin jobs that go around in Washington in the swamp. Our next guest has been a clarion voice for election integrity for a long time, going all the way back to a famous case I got to cover as a younger reporter uh, involving the Black Panthers and the Obama administration. He is a former Justice Department official, and he is Jay Christian Adams, one of our good friends. Christian, great to have you on the show today.
9: Hey, John. Younger reporter, is- huh?
0: <laughs> I had a few more hairs back then. Not a lot, but a few. Right.
9: Uh,
0: well, that was an important case. And I, uh, I watched you stand in the face of enormous pressure. And you stood your ground. You stood your values. And uh, I was in awe of it as a reporter watching that. But you're doing something now that I think is really important. You filed. You were, The last time we talked about you, you were talking about doing this. You have filed multiple lawsuits in Minnesota to get duplicate voters off the roll. How in the 21st century do we end up with duplicate voters on our voting rolls?
9: Well, you know, it's sadly easier than you would imagine. And that is that people register to vote and just change it up a little bit. They instead of John R. Solomon, they put John Richard Solomon uh, on their second application. We found a guy in Pittsburgh registered seven times law uh, in in a pittsburgh suburb look this lawsuit flurry we filed five in a bunch of different counties is hopefully going to clean up some minnesota problems because they've had these duplicates on the rolls for a very long time and some indeed are casting two ballots uh as a matter of fact uh, damian kingbird uh was one of the duplicates he's in a mental hospital a convicted child sex offender managed to cast two ballots in the 2020 election, it looks like. Mm.
2: Unreal. Wow. I, and I wanted to follow up on that because this is a concern, obviously, in Minnesota, but we're also, I think, seeing this replicated across all the other 49 states. We continue to see reports, especially in L.A. County and California, about duplicate people on on voter rolls. How do we clean up all 50 states? Can you go to all the other 49 and file lawsuits? <laughs>
9: Well, in fact, we just, uh, we just issued a report today about New York, New York State. They have the same exact problem there. Tens of thousands of duplicate registrations in New York, a state that's moving to vote by mail. I'll tell you who can fix this is the United States Department of Justice voting section, where I used to work. They have authority under the Help America Vote Act. They have exclusive authority almost, notwithstanding what we just did in Minnesota to actually do something about inaccurate voter rolls and duplicate voter rolls, and they just don't do it since George Bush left office they in 20 uh, what 2009 when the Black Panther case was cooking uh, there's been nothing out of the voting section at the DOJ to fix this problem
0: yeah it's a it's an issue in fact uh, what we found the voting rights section do was working with the IRS the target conservative groups those documents came out recently you go. Now I know what they were doing. They weren't paying paying attention to the elections. It's crazy. Um, President Biden issued an executive order to get federal agencies involved in registration and turnout. Tell us a little bit about this and whether you have any concerns about what it may turn into or what it may already have turned into.
9: Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, government bureaucrats are are generally incapable of doing much, but by golly, they're going to get involved in voter registration. Look, Congress has passed laws multiple times saying that voter registration is a priority of the federal government. So this is not a big shock to me. When I was in the Justice Department, you know, we would make sure that various places were voter registration agencies, like military recruitment offices, for example. Uh, But you know, this is obviously going to be uh, a a register uh, some groups with zeal, and we don't worry about others. I don't think they're going to be setting up at. uh, Bass Pro Shop, uh, right? Doing voter registration. <laughs> yeah, uh, But so. <laughs> yeah, but look, voter registration is a good thing. I, I think if everybody in Texas and Pennsylvania voted, that we would have a country that is much more in line with the Constitution. Unfortunately, too many people who care about freedom don't register and vote. And I think they need to get out there and vote this, this election. That's
0: a great point. Yeah.
2: Bass Pro Shop, Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby. I think there are quite a few places that they would avoid yeah. uh, registering right. voters. Uh, my concern, Christian, though, is that as we often see with tech security and things like that, you've got uh, competing interests that leapfrog. And it seems that after the Zuckerbucks issue came to light and you had some states that were starting to ban it, more states that are still in the process of trying to ban it, then they're like, okay, well, I guess we won't use those private funds from charities. Now we'll switch to public money, which is public money, it's what we all pay as taxpayers. Um, Is this going to create a a perceptible shift as far as Republicans and Democrats and their views on this type of money going into elections?
9: Yeah, that's a good question that uh, unfortunately, and I don't think we know the answer quite yet, but I do know that um, we probably should remind ourselves that whatever the government decides to do, they don't ever do well. So uh, if if in fact uh, they are all out about registering uh, progressives, then I you know I wouldn't put a lot of faith in their ability to execute.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good point. Yes, I, I once met a senator when I first came to Washington, Bill Proxmire, old liberal, and he said. Uh, he called me son because I was such a young reporter. He said, son, don't subscribe to conspiracy if you can blame it on the bureaucracy. They always mess it up. I always found that kind of a funny mm-hmm. piece of advice. Um, I want to take you to a story we did the other day, Christian. Uh, a massive a censorship operation uh, run out of CISA, the Homeland Security Institute, working with third parties, going out, censoring URLs, 4,800 of them, tweets, 22 million of them, uh, 20 news organizations, 29 influencers. By the way, all conservative. Uh, could that be an uh, improper or in kind contribution from those nonprofits who did this?
9: Well, look, what we know about CISA, and in 2020, they're particularly diabolical with individuals like Chris Krebs and Matt Masterson, mm-hmm. right? uh, these individuals, these bureaucrats who were uh, lusting after their newfound ability to control other people, in my opinion. And what we saw then arise, as you know, John was an, a deep state plus corporate America uh, allegiance to shut up people. And, and they're still doing it, and they're getting better at it, and they're working with universities, and they're working... You know, it's interesting. They're kind of doing uh, what the Chinese government uh, asked all these tech companies to do before they could come in and sell in China, aren't they? Like, hey, uh, before Google could have a presence in China or before Microsoft could have a presence in China... They had to develop tools of totalitarianism inside right. their yeah. software. And and now we're seeing them, hey, let's just
0: take it over to the United States. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You hit it right on the head. Jay Christian Adams, it's always an honor to have you on the show. You're one of the great voices in the election integrity space. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, John. Thanks. Bye, Amanda. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
6: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: We're heading into an election, about 30 days left to the election. A lot of people are thinking, what's the October surprise? Here's my prediction. Rising gas prices are going to sour a lot of people on Joe Biden before Election Day. Our next guest has been warning about that for a long time. He is the head of the U.S. Oil and Gas Association, a great friend of the show, Tim Stewart. Tim, great to have you on the show
10: again. Good to be with you guys.
0: We had you on a few weeks ago and you said, watch gas prices are going to start going up end of September. Son of a gun, they went up right there, like you said. Um, this is a real politically perilous moment for the president. Natural forces bringing up prices and then OPEC a couple days ago uh, uh, cutting production by two million barrels a day. What are we looking at?
10: Well, we're looking at the October surprise that none of us really thought would come from overseas. You know, usually as a uh, as a political watcher here, it comes from one side or the other. But uh, I don't think the administration saw this one coming. Um, you know, it's interesting, John, because we we saw this happening. You know, there there were very clear market signals a week or ten days ago, uh, and I, I think you know from what. What we read and what we hear and what my sources are telling me when the, when the administration started to react to what was potentially a million barrel a day cut and they they started to push back on the Saudis and, and on OPEC and say, don't do that. It's a hostile action. And what did they do? They doubled the cut because of that. And and honestly, it, it's sad to watch as an American. It's sad to watch our, our foreign policy become so, so watered down. You know, the, the administration is, is about as hapless as an eighth grade substitute teacher in an English class somewhere. And it's it's tough to watch this play out in real time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And... I'm curious because President Trump in our interview this week brought up um, the issue of energy a lot. And our strategic petroleum reserve is at critically low levels. We can't afford to help out Europe. Europe is looking in a very dark and cold winter. One of the things President Trump talked about was if, if we were able to unleash American energy production, then Putin wouldn't really have a leg to stand on, even with the destruction of Nord Stream 2. Your thoughts?
10: Now, that's a great point. You know, President Trump, to his credit, presided over the greatest energy renaissance in, in our history. He really did. Uh, right before the pandemic, we were producing 13 million barrels a day for all intents and purposes and all things being equal. We were a net exporter of energy and we had that extra capacity. There are were, there were predictions at the time in late 2019 and 2020 that we would be exporting, up, that we would be producing up to 15 million barrels a day. COVID hit. Obviously, the industry went undergo a significant change. And um, as we came out of that, we came out of out of COVID right into the Biden administration, which then kneecapped us. And and between their regulatory assault and the 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 attempt to to defund us and, and to to debank us on Wall Street, we're still a million or a million and a half barrels behind of where we were, and we're three million barrels behind where we could be. And that's really unfortunate. And that's unfortunate for our European allies in particular.
0: Yeah, uh, it's, it's interesting. The president saw it as a pocketbook issue for Americans, but a geopolitical solution for the world to have that energy independence and that energy dominance that we were headed towards at the end of his administration. Do you get any signals that maybe some Democrats realize, uh oh, we've taken this ship a little too far, time to row backwards? Or are they going to double down on ESG and keeping uh, uh, oil and gas off limits in, under, our, under
10: our feet? This is a great time to remind everybody that it was a year ago at this time when every single House Democrat, with the exception of one, voted to eviscerate the oil and gas industry in the Build Back Better action. That We have to remind them of that. And, and, and the, the try as they might and try as they might try to backpedal, John, The fact of the matter is, is they went after us with vengeance and we were able to withstand that assault. Now, I'm happy if they backtrack. I'm happy if they they walk that back because, you know, we need people who understand our industry and and the value we play. And regardless of which party they belong to, Uh, I've had some interesting conversations with members of Congress just in the last two weeks, you know, both the Senate and the House, Republicans and Democrats. And there are Democrats who are starting to say maybe we went a little too far. Maybe we actually need you more than we thought they did. And I welcome that. It's a year too late, but we welcome that.
2: Wow. Um, I'm glad to hear that you've had those those bipartisan conversations. You know, as president of U.S. Oil and Gas Association, you have such a wealth of information and knowledge and wisdom on this topic, as well as everyone else in your organization. So I'm curious if President Biden has reached out to you for wisdom.
10: You know, No. And I I don't know if we ever will hear from them, to be honest with you there. You guys, we've talked about this in in times past, the number of people who are political appointees in the administration who came out of our industry or who really understand it, you can literally count on one hand. Mm. Now, we've had those conversations and bless their hearts. They try. But boy, they run up against obstacles within the own Biden administration itself, trying to, to prevent bad ideas from happening. Now, midterms will change things, and as you know, administrations have that two-year shelf life of a political appointee. We hope that they have some opportunities after after November happens and after the voters speak that they maybe have a – they, they have a ser- serious deathbed conversion, so to speak, and, and they realize how badly they need us.
0: <laughs> yes, that would be something to watch. It'd be a great movie, actually. Um, Tim, uh, how bad is it going to get going into now to Christmas? Because the OPEC thing was a storm no one saw coming. We already had the signals in this market from what the Biden administration had done. Uh, are we looking at five, six, seven, four? What's it gonna be for gas as we head into the, into the uh, holiday season?
10: Well, again, that's always a, a great question, and you and I—you know, and I always joke about if we could see that far in the future, we'd be in Vegas, right? That's right. You know I—we mean? <laughs> I, I, sincerely hope. I, none of us want to get back to five dollars plus a gallon. You know, poor Californians are paying six fifty-seven, and a lot of this is regional. I think what you'll see is, is with the OPEC impact it will actually be be more regional. I think you'll see it on the East Coast and and in the South and probably in the Rockies, you'll see a greater impact with an increase in prices than you might in California and the upper Midwest. And a lot of that depends on the refinery blends that are underway and sort of the the regional access to the type of crude that refineries need. But ultimately, John, I, I, I'll say we're going to be paying more. Um, everybody is—you, me, and everybody else—and uh, that's not a good situation. But let's hope that it that it falls within the, the realm of the feasible and the and the possible of the the affordable versus the the putting people into energy poverty.
2: Yeah. yeah. Tim, we've just got about 30 seconds left. I wanted to ask you a political question. You've got candidates across America who live in energy-rich states. Uh, Doug Mastriano running in Pennsylvania, running on a campaign of unleashing liquefied natural gas. For those candidates, do you think that that is a successful thing for them to run on?
10: Absolutely. And the issue is oil and gas didn't used to be Democrat versus Republican. It was very much reach. We, we used to be able to count on 20 or 25 Democrats from the South who voted with the oil and gas industry constantly. Great point. This, the more that elected officials from both sides remember that, the better off we all are. All right, folks, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
8: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: Joining us now to react to the latest censorship news we broke last week on the show and on justthenews.com is one of those very conservative social influencers that had content restricted or censored outright, especially on Twitter during the last election cycle. Charlie Kirk joins us now. Charlie, great to have you.
11: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
2: So you have a coveted spot on this list. I think that that means that you are effective, but I wanted to get your reaction to it.
11: Yeah. I've seen this list before. Uh, There was something similar to this about a year and a half ago, but we didn't know because I think it was like the great election misinformation spreaders or whatever. What we didn't know is that the federal government, though, was paying money to a third party firm to actually act on the list. And congratulations to you guys. At just the news for breaking this unbelievable story we're looking at legal action i've been talking to the great harmeet dylan and i'll tell you why because you know they always ask the question can you prove damage and like oh yeah we can prove damages i mean from our twitter engagement went off about 90 percent we were wondering why why is it that we're in this kind of penalty box And we complained about it a little bit, but you know, the media doesn't care. They say, oh, boo-hoo, whatever, retweets. And we saw it on multiple platforms, Facebook as well, and we saw our revenue go down in correlation to that. That's a direct monetary and financial loss that could be provable in damages, thanks to the federal government that is coming in and paying money to a third-party firm to restrict our First Amendment rights. So we're looking very carefully at legal action. I think we have a great case, and Harmeet Dillon agrees. But congratulations to you guys for breaking this story. It should be the number one news story in the country. It's outrageous, it's wrong, it's illegal. And the thing I asked John when he came on our program earlier today on Real America's Voice is, is it still going on? What's happening right now? And I guess that remains a mystery.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What we know is that they said they're doing it again. They got the band back together, they said, about a month ago. But we don't know what they're doing. It'll take us six or seven months uh, the way 2020 worked out to even find out. It's just crazy. Jeez. Charlie, when you look at this moment in history, the Constitution's always been clear, the government's not supposed to infringe free speech. And you have these bureaucrats that felt outright emboldened to say, this is not only what we're going to do. We feel it's our mission to censor America, to only give one side of the debate. How did we get a permanent bureaucracy that shares that sort of sentiments?
11: well they really are never held accountable they they're so cavalier because they don't have we don't have the proper checks and balances and this is something i hope republicans take as a mandate is that they have to change the fear in dc because there is no fear right now the bureaucrats in washington dc believe that they can do whatever they want and there is no check and balance there is no recourse there is no punishment if they are to as what is the department of state doing monitoring social media posts the Department of State? I mean, they're there for treaties and diplomacy and ambassadorships, not for monitoring my tweets. And then the Department of Homeland Security. You know, we all kind of took a victory lap early this year when the DHS disbanded Nina Jankowitz as being the Ministry of Truth kind of czar. Only really we got that done because she was so outrageous and kind of just so childish in her communication. But this shows that they still have a misinformation machine, in quotes. They still have a Ministry of Truth, very Orwellian. And so we got here because the permanent bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government, the unchecked, unknown, unelected, where really it's an upside down dictatorship where the dictatorship comes from the civil service and the bureaucracy. They almost tell the president what to do. They're, they're calling the shots, and this is this is something that I really hope that the new Republican Congress, God willing, they take over Congress, they take this incredibly seriously because this right here is our First Amendment rights, our God-given rights being restricted for political gain. And one final thing, John, do you see one Democrat on the list? I mean, could you imagine getting this in front of a fair judge? A fair judge says, do you see one Democrat on this list? Yeah. This, is, this is nakedly political. It's wrong. It's outrageous. The equivalent would be just going and... Uh, seizing people's bank accounts for political reasons or whatever sort of metaphor you want to use, it's so outrageous. And I think there's a big complaint to have here against the federal government. Very exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Charlie, you you are so uh, acutely dialed into young Americans, especially kids on college campuses. And what concerns me the most is these man-on-the-street-style videos where I see young Americans saying, you know, no, I support free speech. Oh, except for hate speech. And there seems to be a major vacuum when it comes to educa- educating on what what is covered under the First Amendment. And that's what scares me, because those people, they're going to be political leaders one day.
11: That's right. Yeah. And so this is the same sort of belief system. The State Department and DHS started on college campuses. What happens on college campuses doesn't stay on college campuses. It goes into the halls of Congress, goes into the corporate bureaucracy and goes into the kind of deep state, that fourth branch of government. And so we're doing our Turning Point USA campus tour, kicking off tonight actually, University of Delaware. Uh, And then we have Grand Canyon University, UT Austin. We're going all across the country. This is something I've been trying to warn against, John, you know this, for many years. And I think people are really taking it seriously now to the greatest extent where, oh, who's the ones that are actually authorizing this at DHS? Oh, they were just at Yale and Princeton and Stanford, and they were just at Georgetown learning that speech is not a value that you should respect, that it's all about power, and if someone says something you disagree with, you should be able to use political power to shut that person up. What's so interesting about the social media wrinkle is that The government technically doesn't have jurisdiction to be able to tell a social media company to take down their posts. So they have to almost create workarounds around the U.S. Constitution, and they've done so successfully. You look at what Zuckerberg revealed on the Joe Rogan podcast last month, or back in August, where he said, hey, the FBI just showed up and told us to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story. What is Mark Zuckerberg supposed to do, not listen to the FBI? I mean, he could take a stand against them, but there's a nine ways to Sunday that they're able to threaten Mark Zuckerberg with congressional hearings and all this. So he says, OK, so the FBI censored it that way. And then the then the DHS and State Department goes to third party actors and says, we don't like Charlie Kirk. We don't like Jack Posobiec. We don't like Tom Fitton. We don't like these people suppress their posts. This is all happening without our knowledge, too. This is that's what's so extraordinary about your reporting, John. It is a great silencing that was done totally in the shadows. My guess is that this is just a little bit of what they're actually doing to suppress our liberties. It's rather extraordinary.
0: I think you're right. I think we have a lot more digging to do. Charlie, we've got about a minute left. Uh, I watch the Charlie Kirk show all the time. You were talking a year ago. Hispanics are going to start moving towards the conservative party? Yes, we were. It is an avalanche now. Tell us what's going on, what the dynamic is.
11: Yeah, we, we've done, uh, boy, a lot of reporting on this and because we're on the front lines, we see it. I think that white woke liberalism is deeply unpopular in almost every community that is isn't upper middle class suburban America at a very, very highly educated, highly compensated kind of demographic. And so you have white you have Latino Hispanic workers that are in the muscular class that own businesses that were crushed by covid lockdowns that are also then hearing incredibly liberal out, out of the ordinary social values kind of being imperialistically and kind of in a colonist, colonistically way imposed upon them of, oh, yeah, men can become pregnant and men can become women and women become men. That's very unpopular in the Latino community. You pair that with rising gas prices and the rest, you're seeing the great red wave, a once in a generation seismic shift.
0: All right, folks, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
6: Welcome to Fail Better. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Ah.
5: The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition, the Sunday edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News. I'm so glad we could take the best interviews from our television show, Just the News, that Noise, that Amanda Head and I do, and adapt them so you can can hear them on this podcast. But Taylor made for the listening experience. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading Just the News. Thank you for watching Just the News, not noise. We are forever grateful for your support. And I'll tell you, we'll be back on Monday and do this all over again with a new edition of John Solomon Reports, a podcast from Just the News tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night.